So good evening, everyone. I would like to begin with just deep appreciation for being able to witness so much unfolding. All of the blooming of our hearts and minds that's been going on this week. Um, to be able to support that and to be able to grow from it uh, is very humbling. And what's so true is uh, that we all suffer, that we all have our various flavors in this soup that we're all cooking together as a collective here in the Sangha, but also in the world. And uh, so I'm, I'm in deep appreciation for your showing up and your willingness and uh, staying with the process and really, in a gentle way, cultivating the heart through wise awareness, wise awareness. And this evening, Tara and I are going to talk about what do we do with this big heart of ours? <laughs> you know, you've probably noticed through the heart practices that we've gone through this week that um, the more we work with the heart, the more we want to brim out into the world. The more we begin to concern ourselves with, with, with this so-called other that's really not an other. It's the extension of ourselves, our society, our families, our loved ones, our pets, the planet. You know, the heart naturally, its nature is to be in, serve, in service to the collective. And in some ways, the, the heart is severed because of our relationships and our conditioning and and, um, you know, the ways we've been bumped and bruised. So, but it doesn't stop the heart from its inclination, its nature to serve, to give. So, I want to talk a little bit about this kind of larger context that we're in because there's just so much threat in our social realm. There's so much threatening our sense of humanity and and, um, democracy, near and far. There's a lot of craziness out there. We'll be going, you know, we have a political madness right now that we are all touched by in different ways. You know, there's, there is still the criminalization of black and dark bodies throughout the world. There is um, immigration, trauma, and devastation that's happening in many parts of the world. There's gun violence, there's misogyny and sexism run amok in our society. We know this, we're touched by this. Our heart is in relationship to this. The planet is, in, um, is offering us a, pol- a political movement with the different ways she's expressing 
herself in revolt of, of our relationship to her, perhaps, or just to what's happening in the world. We have Flint, Michigan's water and Puerto Rico's devastation and subordination and, you know, Florida. And, um, and these, this is, we live in very tumultuous times. And if we look out further, we can see that it's just not in our immediate lives. You know, there's, there's Syria and Pakistan and Bosnia and Tibet and just to name a few. And the current injury and injustice that we see in the world that's pervasive, a pervasive part of our social fabric and uh, planet and our relationships, even in our own hearts, they're the result of past seeds of consciousness, whether ignorance or innocence. What we do matters, what we do plants seeds. And those seeds bloom at some point, or they're stuffed out. They're kind of smothered out, I guess might be the word, if we crowd it with other kinds of seeds of goodness. But left unattended, they really begin to show us the, a collective consciousness in the world that is in bloom, in bloom for us to see, in bloom for us to bring our heart our wise hearts too. And the work I've been doing is around this heart disease that we have that I'm calling racism. I talk about racism as a heart disease that's curable. And it's curable in, in large ways through our attention to it, through our mindfulness of it and to our relationship to it. So there's a way I'd like to talk tonight about carving racism out of the gestalt of social ills because the shape of dominance and oppression and that, that kind of makes up the constellation that we live in around this issue, if we were to exchange race with sexism, we're going to see the same dance. And one of the things I'd like to talk about is the skeletal shape of oppression so that we can begin to bring our awareness to the shape of it and our relation to it, relationship to it. And I'm going to attempt to do that all in a half an hour. <laughs> the Zen stick. Thank you so much. Well, understanding how we have been conditioned to think about and respond uh, to race and racism is at the heart of racial distress and racial liberation. Looking at how we've been conditioned to think and see and be with this. So some of the questions we might begin to ask ourselves around this as we extend and allow the heart to do its nature, which is to extend out and care, is one question is to ask why are matters of race still matters of concern? 
And what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And it's really an inquiry of um, looking on the inside for that. Because so often when we're looking at race, it's something external to us that we have to attend to or go fix or, or get rid of or, or, or something. But just like we've been doing this week with this practice, we've been looking at how do we just stay close in? You know, how do we feel what's alive, what's happening in your body, even as I say the word race and racism? You know. So one of the ways to look at the shape of this, and I'm going to make this really um, in its most simplistic form, is that we're all good individuals that have suffered and has had childhood stuff and a loss, lust, and longing. We've all been, you know, in our soup with that to a large degree this week, really looking at our mind and looking at the ways we kind of move in and back up or shrink. So we're all individuals doing that work. We're also racial beings that are part of racial identity groups and our larger soup. And that really means something. That really means something. Those are not just words. There's a, there's a shape to how that dances in our social realm. Sometimes um, what I've noticed in a lot of the work that I do is that many white people, for example, can readily relate to being individuals but not always membered in a, in a white group. The, the whiteness part of white hasn't been vetted and investigated and teased apart and explored and kind of massaged. That's changing a bit, but largely um, that, that hasn't been an area of vetting where, where whites come together with other whites and they're looking at whiteness and the conditioning of that. So many white people hang out in the place of the good individual. People of color tend to hang out in the place of racial group identity. And when we start to have the conversations with each other about race, people of color are bringing this history and lineage and generational impact and accumulative impact and repetitive motion injury from talking about it a lot. And, and white people are coming with their individual goodness. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that there's some stuff missing, and we, we miss each other. We bring our goodness to it, our good intention, but we miss each other because uh, we're not bringing our full history to the table. An understanding of our intimacy with our racial conditioning is missing in the dynamic. Sometimes that gets played out. I've had many people say to me that when I look at you, I don't see color. I don't see race. But I need you to see race. I understand that in the sense of absolute reality and ultimate reality. But in relative reality, there is racial dynamics. 
and a lot of people that look like me are, are harmed by people that look like you, you know? So that's a collective um, way of seeing as opposed to an individual, personal lens. And this is a place where we miss each other and it's very painful. There is the dance among racial group identities of dominance and subordination. We can see it. We can see it. You know, the dominant group here, dominant groups in politics, dominant groups, you know. This is not a judgment. It's something that we can open our awareness and our hearts to. Another shape of this dance of dominance and subordination is uh, what I refer to as the stars and the constellations. It's a way of, it's it's just the way we've been conditioned to see things, you know. Like one example of stars and constellations is when, when people say, all lives matter. That's a, that's a, that's the example of we're all stars, we're all important. That's an ultimate, that's an individual lens, actually. All lives matter. But if you look at collective lens and you look at the dance of racial dynamics socially, near and far, we can see why there's movements like Me Too movements and Black Lives Matter, because there's an imbalance socially with power, with resources, with care. So uh, when Michael Brown, the 18-year-old African-American man that was uh, shot in, um, by a 28-year-old in Ferguson, Darren Wilson, there was a group of us in Charlotte that got together to talk about that. There's been many conversations since then, many shootings. And when we, we were in the circle talking about it, um, there was a white man in the circle about, you know, in his 40s. We had watched this little video clip of what had happened. And, um, and we were asked to kind of talk about what we saw and what we felt. So the white male said, I can't believe that officer shot that boy and that should have never happened and um, I, I feel horrible about this. He was trembling, he was shaking, he was crying and it was a real moment for him. And when I shared about what I saw, I said, I can't believe that once again a white police officer has shot an unarmed African-American male and it's happening a lot and I too was shaking, I too was crying, I too was trembling. He saw the star, this, this isolated in- incident that he was describing in that moment. I saw a constellation. I saw, I saw a tattoo. I saw, I saw the Big Dipper. And sometimes when we're, when we're trying to understand the complexity and and the, the accumulative impact of, of certain races that when we're in the dialogue, the, the chronic fatigue, the, you know, just the, 
just the escalation sometime of energy it's, it's because of this this way of seeing seeing constellations as opposed to just the stars and, and both are, are real but we miss each other when we start seeing the constellations we can we can understand um, uh, you know how the, the woman of color at Yale who was taking a nap in the lounge and the white woman calls the police because she looks suspicious. You can understand that this sense of uh, criminology or suspicion gets placed on racial group identities, on immigrants. You know, We can see that more readily when we're willing to look at the, the constellation of harm that is pervasive. And not only can we begin to see that uh, through our heart and mind, we can also begin to see the constellations uh, and the same patterns that are with Aboriginal people and Native people and dark bodies and immigrants and throughout the world. And, and we can see the systemic patterns that are dependent on these dynamics growing for gain the militarization of the police force, the strength of gun, gun advocacy, the prison industrial complex, all making bets on these constellations. It's what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalist. And that's something we can open our awareness to and look at our relationship to. These struggles interconnect. They're not separate. They're not isolated incidents. We must think about things being together instead of seeing them as separate. There's a dance. One of our teachers, Saidao Utejaniya, he says this. He says, one thing you need to remember and understand is that you you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched constantly. If you don't look after your mind, it grows, it will overgrow with weeds. But this is the line that gets me. He says, the mind does not belong to you, but you're responsible for it. You're responsible for it. And this responsibility comes into play through our mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice becomes an inquiry into the ethical quality of mind, our responsibility to the collective. And one of our challenges is, and practices is to learn how to engage with people with heart and within the context of their life and your own life. Relating to people within the context of their life and your life. So there's this conditioned scene that we have where there's a beautiful teaching, uh, the Vipalasa Sutta, that really talks about the, 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 the um, cycle of misperception or the distortion of perception. Perception is a big part of this, how we've been conditioned to see, you know. So in this sutta, there's a teaching that looks at this mechanism of we have 
we perceive and immediately that what comes with perception is our thoughts and feelings and then when that gets reinforced it shapes a view and then the view influences the perception which then shapes thoughts and feelings about it and then that gets played out and then you've got a belief of you and so that gets played out and played out and played out so one way I try to illustrate this is um, um, I was in Charlottesville and uh, teaching and a white woman took me to the airport and, and so we got to this intersection and I looked up and the street sign said Barack Avenue and I said oh my goodness you know I'm sitting there and silent and this is amazing what a progressive city you know, I'm, I'm thinking of calling Barbara saying, we got to live here. We, let's, let's move. <laughs> They've got a street called Barack Avenue. All of a sudden, my body straightened up, and I started speaking in Swahili. And I mean, I was just, <laughs> right? So I finally opened my mouth, and I said to the white woman that was driving, I said, uh, you know, I got to tell you, you know, this is pretty amazing. And, that you have this street called Barack Avenue. And she said, <clears throat> in these parts, we call that Barracks Avenue. And I, I, I you know, I, I just had gone off on my whole head trip about it being Barack Avenue, the, the thoughts and emotions I had about it, the belief of what a progressive city was, and I was all wrong. And um, we laughed all the way to the airport. But uh, I think about what if I hadn't opened my mouth and said something. This is a real important piece of how we begin to talk about our conditioning and the projections we put on things. And this same kind of dynamic of this, we see something, we perceive it. We perceive black bodies as criminals we put, you know, the triggers pull before you know it, and then, and then we're off and running it, you know. This is the same mechanism at work and at a collective level and a global level. And we can kind of slow it down and catch ourselves in it and begin to ask different questions. I was on a plane, and I usually wear these wristbands. They say, uh, mindful of race, not there yet. And uh, it's just a fun way to, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people about race and it's like, okay, this could take a couple of years, so let me just give them a wristband. <laughs> Not there yet. You want one? You, you, got, you got five of them? Okay, good. So I'm, I'm on the plane, and I get on the plane, and this uh, white woman stewardess, she, she says, oh, what's your wristband? And I said, Oh, mindful of race. And before I could say any more, she says, oh, yeah, I ran a 10K for cancer, you know. So she had perceived the ball head with the wristband and race and was off and running. <laughs> and all I could say is thank you very much. I really, thank you for your love. I love you. I love you, too. So 
So there's a couple of structures that you can put into place to continue to investigate your conditioning around race. Um, one is this mindfulness practice that we've been doing, and especially the compassion, uh, looking, bringing compassion into the mix with it. And so, uh, you know, this is a real important piece. And then a second structure is um, what I refer to as, as uh, being engaged in a racial affinity group, getting with other people like your race, four or five, no more than six other people, and beginning to have some conversations about your conditioning. Some people say, oh, we should just all get in a room together. We can work it out. Um, and it's not that that's not a bad strategy. It's just that there's another piece that can enrich the engagement, and that's when we understand our own conditioning. You know, sometimes what we're doing with racial affinity groups is not separating to separate, but we're acknowledging the separation that exists in our social realm. And then we're using that separation to further investigate our understanding of our relationship to that. Some of you have asked about the separation of the people of color group and the LGBTQI group. And sometimes that's needed so that there could be a regulating of the nervous system or a sense of feeling in uh, because it could be um, challenging when the dominant group in a group like so large is predominantly white. So the intention often is to just connect and to, to, to work with the mind without the stories that can sometimes deregulate our nervous system. A racial affinity group is not so much a meditation group as as much as it is a group of exploring our conditioning. You know, we can ask questions like, um, uh, when did you first discover you were a race? Some of us know this, some of us don't. What were the events that solidified you as a racial being? And what are, what are the roots of your racial lineage? And given your lineage, what has your race gained or lost? How does that play out in the world, in your relationships? What has your great racial group membership protected you from knowing, experiencing, or trusting about other races? And why was this believed to be necessary? These are intimate and this is intimate inquiry into your conditioning and seeing what's shared and what's, what's, what's not so that you can be fortified and, and remember your rootedness. And sometimes the questions that you engage may not have an answer. They might be just to apprentice you, something for you to sit with and consider or to... Um, be with your relationship with it. And this structure is not the only thing we need, but I think it really would bring some richness to our uh, texture and intimacy and um, the healing of the heart disease that we are in, whether we know it or not. So these times are really calling us into honesty, 
into more honesty, more unity, more freedom from the inside out. You know, it's important for us to just see that our, our heart belongs to the world. There's a term in Pali called Samvega, and Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as an inner commotion or shock, which does not allow us to rest until our habitual adjustment, rest with our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it, get, it drives us on out of our cozy palaces into unfamiliar jungles to work out with diligence authentic tolu- solutions to our existential plight. So we have, um, we can do beautiful things with our practice. And I'll just uh, close with a couple of quotes here. One is Cornel West who says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And Martin Luther King Jr. puts it this way. He says, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. So racism is a hard disease, and it's curable. Thank you. Namaste, and Ruth, deep namaste. Um, I'm so valuing what you're saying, and I continue to digest. We're speaking, you know, of this heart path and waking up the wisdom of our hearts, the bodhisattva path. And um, some years ago, I realized that there was no way for me to really continue waking up or really wake up without bringing uh, a very dedicated attention to whiteness. And um, I really believe that. I don't think we can exist in this society and really discover that freedom of non-separation without really dedicating ourselves to shining a light on that particular way that we're conditioned. Uh, I was reading uh, something Seb wrote, and you quoted somebody, I think it was Jane Fonda, who said, we don't think our own thoughts, we think society's thoughts. And yet... We're so identified with the thoughts. We're so quick to believe them that we don't even know the water we're swimming in. So I'd like to uh, continue uh, this reflection, but I'll I'll be shifting the focus some. Uh, There's really, in a broad way, the bodhisattva path, this path of awakening heart, is we're waking up out of the trance of separation. And there's a lot of different ways that we create our separation. Uh, I think of one, uh, Swami Satchidananda, 
who was asked the difference between illness and wellness, and he wrote the words out, illness and wellness. He circled the I of illness and the W-E of wellness. You get it, yeah. It's that eyeing, living in that eye trance. So much so that when Ruth talked about that drive in Charlottesville, uh, the first thing I heard was that she was mentioning Brock Avenue. And so I thought, oh, Brock Avenue. <laughs> then I quickly caught on it was Barack. <laughs> but um, eyeing, that I. <laughs> so you didn't want to live on Brock Avenue, eh? <laughs> ah. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <laughs> Yay, Ruth. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not there yet. <laughs> May it ever remind me. (laughs) So, while you were here, if you were tracking suffering, the suffering, when we're really agitated, when we're hurting, when we're angry, when we're judging, hand in hand with that is a solidified, separate sense of me. And when we're feeling gratitude, when we're feeling joy, peace, that meanness kind of disappears. There's a field. Did you notice that some? So in Zen, they say there's only two things, that you sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how large the garden is. And when Ruth described in such a beautiful way that the heart's natural inclination... And I suspect you notice this yourself, that as you start opening, the natural inclination of that opening is wanting to touch others and, and connect and, and deepen that sense of communion. I think of um, the bodhisattva path in evolutionary terms. And more and more I think of the brain's development and how... Every one of us is a bodhisattva, awakening being. That every one of us has this potential um, to really include the world in our hearts. We have that. It's, you can see with brain development, the, the prefrontal cortex, when the brain's integrated and activated and the parts are talking to each other, that is correlated with a quality of heart that really senses belonging together. But often we get hijacked by our limbic system, by fear and wanting, and we get cut off from that integrated heart-mind. So it's our potential. And and often in teaching I call it our future self only because um, we forget it. But when we actually call on our heart wisdom we find that it's always and already here. We just need to remember, reconnect. Sati, that presence. So, one of my early retreats, one of my most standout memories, was um, doing a lot of heart practice and feeling that that openness and that that sense of that kind of realization that I can love myself into healing, and that we really can love each other into healing. That that sense of that that possibility, and I remember. I'd watch, I'd watch a spider or 
um, a worm, and I knew that if I watched it long enough, I could never hurt it. Because the deepest form of love is really attention. When we really pay attention to any life form, it starts belonging. We start sensing that belonging. So I was really inspired, you know. I, I, I had these plans, I was going to go home, and I had all, anybody I had distance with, I had plans on how I was going to bridge it, and I was going to listen to my son more carefully and really be present. And it was really, I was Kuan Yin Tara, you know. I was like glowing as I, you know. And I remember going home and uh, walking into the kitchen, and on the kitchen table was... Um, and a bill, it was an unpaid bill that my, my ex-husband hadn't mailed. So you can hear the tone of my voice. My ex-husband <laughs> hadn't mailed it. <laughs> and he was there, and, and I blew up. I mean, I totally blew up. And he very, quite calmly said, oh, so that's what they teach you at retreat. <laughs> so, of course, I blew up at him. Then I, of course, turned on myself, and all that loving was uh, down the tubes in a moment. Um, Bodhisattva vanished. Um, so I, say, I share this little vignette because this path requires a real honest commitment to looking to how we create other, how we separate, how we push others out of our heart. And I often call it unreal others. Others become unreal. They're... No, they're players in our field, we are the protagonists, but they're no longer subjective, feeling beings. That happens a lot. I mean, it really happens if somebody, if we are feeling uh, aversion towards somebody and they're not cooperating, they're not going along with us, all of a sudden, all we're seeing is this uncooperative being. I remember... Uh, one story of a couple that were struggling uh, around their sex life. They went into sex therapy and, and one of the partners is bemoaning, you know, we never have sex. And the other gets really angry and, say, and says, we always have sex. And so the therapist said, well, you know, how often do you have sex? And in unison they said, three times a week. Coming from it, you know, totally different worlds. So what happens when we are needs clash, you know. So we see unreal others when people don't agree. We see unreal others when we're grasping, when we have an agenda and we want something from somebody. Others become unreal when we're stressed and they just don't matter. They're kind of in the way. You might remember that story about a guy hearing a knock on the door and he opens the door and there's a snail and he takes a snail and he throws it as far as he can. Well, three years later, <laughs> here's another knock at the door and he opens up the door and the snail says, what the heck was that all about? <laughs> so I want so, <laughs> so we're going to look at some of the bodhisattva trainings in compassion. Like really, what are the key elements of waking up our heart out of separation? And uh, Ruth spoke of, on the societal level, the importance of seeing what we don't see, our group identity. And we're going to look at it um, 
just in some of the most basic ways of waking up and seeing what we're not seeing. There's a lot we don't see. But what I'd like to do, first is I want to define compassion a little. And compassion is when we're touched or resonating with our own or another's suffering. And there's an awareness of that. It's a mindful, compassionate presence. And there's an urge, there's a care, there's an urge to in some way bring some healing or relief. Those are the components of, of real compassion. And what I'd like to do is explore with you, and I'll, we'll end up with a, a sitting, and I keep track of time here. We'll explore how, and this is the question for you, where in your life is there some conflict or separation that you'd like to be able to have more of that open-heartedness? Where have you created an unreal other? So I'm inviting you to, to think of that, and even right this moment you might bring to mind somewhere that you feel anger or blame. And somebody close in that you just kind of are really caught in that with, or maybe someone you don't know but is a more public figure, you don't know personally. But take some moments right now just to sense where you're in some way living with that anger or blame, where you've created an unreal other. to consider if you included that being in your heart, what difficult would you have to feel? What would you have to face or feel if you in some way included that person? What difficult would you have to feel? And you can uh, just, I'd like to hear a little bit in the room. Just if you, just raise your hand and speak loudly. What would you have to feel? Anybody? Ah, that the other person is right and I'm wrong. Okay? So I'm, I'm wrong in some way. What else would you have to feel if you opened your heart? Yeah. My heart is hardened. My part in the process, yes. So you'd have to sense again where you were imperfect and where you what you did wrong. Thank you. Yeah. What else? Way in the back and speak as loud as you can. Powerless. How many of you got powerless? Felt that sense of powerless. Yeah. Anything else? Fear of being hurt again. Yeah. Yeah. Please. That what they're doing is enough. So you'd have to accept the enoughness of what they're doing, right? Which would then make you feel what? That you have to do more, okay. Getting them to meet at the beginning. They stay separate. So here's the thing, and thank you each of you, is that we can't just open our hearts to others without getting in touch with some level of vulnerability in ourselves. 
And what stops us from opening to others is not really wanting to contact that vulnerability. So the first step, if you want to go further on this bodhisattva path, whether it's on a personal level or a societal level, is that willingness to make what I call the U-turn and find out what's going on inside you that's vulnerable, that you might not want to feel, but that you need to be with. Now, one of my favorite uh, quotes is Rumi, saying, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it, and to embrace them. A Sufi scholar told me that there's more to that quote, and to embrace them. So what this means is that when we push another out of our heart, or ourself out of our heart, we need to face that and embrace it. It means that we have to start with self-compassion. The Bodhisattva path has to keep coming back to self-compassion. Otherwise, we will not have the space to include another. So I want to give you um, an example from my life of... um, I I did a uh, year-long group, um, a white-awake group, where we were investigating our whiteness. I also, there was somewhat overlap, spent, I think it was three and a half years, in a a multiracial group exploring our relationships. And it was um, really to deepen our understanding, to wake up out of unreal other. And I was entering into it with as I expressed here, a tremendous amount of passion, really getting that I can't wake up unless I understand more about my own biases, my own privilege, and so on. I had one time I was um, swimming, and it was kind of an amazing experience. Jonathan and I were together, and we were swimming out to this island, and I had never swum so well. I mean, I was strong and graceful, and I was swimming along thinking Olympia, you know, like I was having ideas. But anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, I just, I really felt uh, in the flow, you know, in the zone. And then we rested on the island, did some stuff, swam back, coming back, I was exhausted, I was a wimp, I was wiped out. Turned out, of course, as you can imagine, when I was going there, I was with the current, coming back, I was going against the current. And it registered in a, in a very deep way how much I don't get all the currents that make my life so much easier than any person of color. I just, I'm, just, I'm just oblivious to them, and as I begin to catch on to them, it's really, really painful you know, to, to know that going back against that current, that's every day in so many ways that I barely am catching on to. So I enter this group and I'm, I'm, get, I'm deepening that sense of it and feeling the weightiness of that. And, and for the first couple of months, in, all of, in, our, in our dialogue, I was tremendously self-conscious and I felt really anxious and I was really worried about saying the right things. And I really didn't feel authentic. And under that judgment, I was falling short. You know, I I felt like I was this privileged white person and I just wasn't doing enough. And so I was having a a mix of my, uh, on a personal level, that's my chronic routine anyway, that I'm, you know, need to do more, need to do more. But also I was beginning to sense 
as a white person being part of a dominant group that has caused so much harm and it's not my fault but it's my responsibility to be engaged and basically it was white guilt that I was really, really filled with and I remember before one particular morning um, really feeling a, a big clench in my chest and so I practiced with it and I did rain and underneath when I got underneath the guilt there was this just this really deep sorrow that this sense of deficiency was preventing me from connecting and bringing my fullness to the process and really opening my, my heart the way I wanted to and um, and, and I landed up with a lot of self-compassion and tenderness. Not just, it's not my guilt, it's the guilt. It's just, it's part of, you know, I'm thinking society's thoughts. You know, really getting the whole, much more of the constellation and just holding it all with a lot of tenderness. I asked myself a question that's so helpful sometimes, which is, you know, who would you be if you didn't believe anything was wrong with you? You can try that on any time. And what I sensed was, oh, I'd be free to really learn and grow in love, you know. So I just remember that day, um, I named something about the guilt, not asking anybody to fix it, but just, okay, so this is a layer I'm I'm working with. And there was so much spontaneity and uh, much more intimacy and caring, and, and it kept emerging in that way. The reason I share it is because I couldn't just go into that group and say, I should just be compassionate and open to everyone here. I had to first bring self-compassion to the place that was stuck inside me. It's spiritual bypass otherwise. So that's, that's the first thing I want to bring up. The second is that once we have brought self-compassion to ourselves, we need to be able to look and see the vulnerability in others. And this is a training that is probably the most important training I know. Um, I was very moved by a a story, Ruby Sales, who's a civil rights activist, theologian, and she describes this defining moment when she was having her hair done and the daughter of the woman doing her hair came in and She had been out hustling all night. This is how Ruby describes it. And she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs and so on. And something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelley, where does it hurt? And that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. She talked about being incested. She talked about all the things that happened as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. And I realized in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work. To me, this is the core inquiry of the bodhisattva. To ask our own hearts, where does it hurt? To look at each other in some way sense, where does it hurt? It's much like that, um, many of you have heard that metaphor I give of seeing a dog under a tree and a person goes to pet it and the dog, you know, just aggressively bears its fangs and, and, and attacks and the person goes from feeling like, you know, oh, you poor dog to, or are you nice dog to, you know, bad, bad dog, unreal other, bad, unreal other. 
um, and then notices the dog's legs in a trap, and then they shift again to, oh, you poor thing. Well, when we're behaving in conditioned ways that are causing harm to ourselves and others, personal level and societal level, there's a leg in a trap. There's some fear or woundedness. And if we want to be able to respond to our world with that bodhisattva heart, we need to be able to see that suffering. We need to be able to really open ourselves to it. I know for Jonathan and myself, with you know, because like every two people we have clashes of needs and we get into we can be unreal to each other and what we do is each of us will take some time and usually bring our attention inward and be with what's there. We, all, we have now kind of a, a joke and some of you might know the word role reversal which is being able to see through another person's eyes, really get where it's hurting. Well, the joke is that whoever role reverses first wins. <laughs> So it's our bodhisattva competition, you know. <laughs> Who's the real bodhisattva of the pair, you know? <laughs> so, again, it's, it's this pathway to beginning to wake up out of that separateness that we first love ourselves into healing. Then we look through those eyes of the bodhisattva to really know the other. Because otherwise we're reacting from a a limbic hijack that's always going to cause harm. There's a, a, in the memorial, genocide memorial center in Rwanda, there's an engraving that uh, I think is so powerful. It says, if you knew me and you really knew yourself, you would not have killed me. So the first step knowing ourselves, holding ourselves with kindness, then seeing the vulnerability in in another. And then the third step, and this is very much part of the psychobiology of compassion, is extending care, acting, acting in the world. Now we can extend care through our prayers and through our words and through our gestures. But it's that activism that fully wakes up the bodhisattva heart. One time, writes Scott McClanahan, a man left home. He had argued with his mother and father the day before he left. They spoke horrible words to one another, and he left without saying goodbye. He had been gone many years and even spent time in jail. Years later, he finally got out of jail, and he wondered if his mother and father were even alive and if they were ashamed of what had been said and where he had wound up. He wrote to them and told them he be coming home on a specific day the following week. And if they wanted to see him and were not ashamed, they should put a blanket on the clothesline and he would know to come inside. If the blanket was missing, he'd know that he was not welcomed. He'd know to turn back. He told them he hoped they were in good health. The man arrived by rail the next week. He was nervous when he stepped off the train. There was no one there to meet him. He walked up the worn path towards the home place and thought about the past. He thought about his time in jail. He thought about how ashamed his parents must have been. He thought about the horrible words they spoke. He was just about to turn around and go back when he came and saw a blanket in a tree. He kept walking and he saw another blanket. He kept walking 
and he saw another. Then he turned towards home and the house was covered in blankets. The yard was covered in blankets. The clothesline was covered in blankets. The path to the door was covered in blankets. And his parents were standing there and they were welcoming him inside. We need to put out blankets, let each other know we're welcome. We need to remind each other of our goodness. We need to extend. So what we're looking at is an evolutionary capacity. As Ruth was describing, we, it's a dis-ease, it's a disease, it's deep, the sense of separation. There's so much pain in this trance. And it's curable that everything we're doing is the practices that wake us up out of that trance. So suffering's the flag. If you're suffering, you are in some way believing something untrue that's keeping you separate from yourself and from others. So I'd like to close by practicing a bit of um, the, the bodhisattva, these, these three kind of uh, elements of enlarging our heart, widening the circles of our heart to include someone that we may have closed down on. And feel free to adjust how you're sitting, so you're comfortable, you're upright. And I'll use the language of uh, your inner bodhisattva, your future self, and by future I don't mean ahead in time as much as that which is manifesting as you deepen your attention, that which is really your potential and is always and already here. So once again, choosing a situation in your life where there's some sense of separateness, some distance or conflict. It could be the same one as before or a different one, where you want your heart to be more awake, more inclusive. letting yourself look closely into the situation so that you go right to, if you're watching a movie, the frame of the movie that really illustrates most how there's separation, where there's reactivity, where you're closing down in some way. Since what's the worst part about this? What really triggers you to pull away or push away, to lock into blame or anger?
you can feel a bit in your body what it's like when you're stuck. when it would feel very hard to forgive or open. And from that place, call on your future self. Call on that in you which is most wise, most loving. And if it is easier for you, you can alternately call on some figure, some being that expresses that bodhisattva wisdom and heart. But call on that future self or bodhisattva of compassion in some way and sense that that presence is streaming into you, filling you. That wisdom, that heart. sense from that bodhisattva place your aspiration may this serve to awaken may this awaken compassion try on that aspiration may this suffering, this distance this reactivity may this be a portal that awakens me Feel that intention. May this awaken me from that trance of separation. And from the perspective, the view, the wisdom of your bodhisattva self, your future self, see your small self, that which is caught in that reactive conditioning the thoughts, the beliefs, the feelings. And sense your own vulnerability, the small self's vulnerability, that part of the small self that feels out of control, that you're going to be hurt, you are hurt, or powerless, threatened, not seen, the place where there's real unmet needs. You might put your hand on your heart and sense from your future self that you're offering to that part of you that's been caught in reactivity what's most needed right now, the care or the support Maybe just that understanding, saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. The company. And sense that possibility of really letting in that compassion. Just physically sensing it can be bathing your heart. once we can bring that self-compassion and really feel it in a visceral way 
you begin to more fully look through those eyes of your future self at the other person and sense with that inquiry, well, where does it hurt how that person's leg is in a trap? What is it that's keeping that person caught? What fear, what unmet need, what confusion, what hurt? Letting your bodhisattva heart be touched by the realness of this being and sense perhaps some ways that you might respond to the situation, perhaps some creative or different ways that might be possible. As you do so and as you feel your heart including this being more, sensing who you are when your heart includes another, what's your sense of your own being? Who are you when you're not believing you're wrong or another's wrong? Just sense now in the quietness whatever message from your future self, your bodhisattva self might be here for you. We close with a school prayer from Diane Ackerman. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace in the name of the sun and its mirrors and the male and the female and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell 
on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. Thank you for your attention.